10-3 is brought to you by Odyssey Golf. I gotta say, this is a stroke of genius. The new Stroke Lab putters from Odyssey are engineered to build a better stroke. Odyssey completely rebalanced the putter by using a multi-material shaft that moved weight towards the head and the grip. You'll feel the difference immediately. And with every putt, you'll actually be building a better stroke. And a better stroke is what makes more putts. The new Stroke Lab from Odyssey, the number one putter in golf, Learn more at odysseygolf.com. How does a vulnerable teen wind up dying of an overdose? The victim of a bad trip that was filmed and broadcast on social media. Carson Cremeni died in hospital in early August after falling victim to just such a scenario. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. We look at the circumstances that led to the teen's death and what this tragedy says about the behavior of teens both online and in real life. Don't forget to subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please leave us a rating and a review. Richard Warnicke is a feature writer with the National Post. So Richard, who was Carson Cremeni and how did he die? Uh, Carson Cremeni was a 14-year-old boy in Langley, BC. He died in a very visible fashion. He was with a group of older teens and took what I guess we understand now to be a lot of drugs and then overdosed and was found later by himself in a park and uh, was still alive when first responders got to him but died in hospital. You say he died in a in a very public fashion. What made his death so public? So Carson was with a group of older teens. Uh, other people's reporting, Nancy McDonald from the Globe and Mail most especially, have reported that Carson was a, a bullied kid. He, he didn't fit in. He didn't have a lot of friends. He, he was desperate to belong. And he was with a group of older teens who we understand that there's no hard proof, gave him a lot of drugs and filmed him getting increasingly desperately high. Um, and you see these clips that I've seen parts of, and he looks like a little kid who is losing it. You know, his face is incredibly red. He's thrashing around. His eyes are bugging and pinwheeling. And the kids who were with him are taking videos of this and sending them out to their community with with text on it with things like, 12-year-old on Molly and, you know, he's 14 tabs deep. And then the final video that's been reported on is someone standing near the, the ambulance with a video and it says underneath, Carson almost died, LOL. Now, do we know if police have charged anyone yet or even what this would amount to in terms of a criminal act? Uh, there have been no charges laid as of whatever today is, Wednesday. And you know, there have been a number of calls, enormous public interest in this. There's, you know, 25,000 people on a petition saying these kids can be charged. But, you know, I spent a lot of time last week talking to legal experts about this, and it's really unclear what they would be charged with. Um, the charge you hear cited most often is criminal negligence causing death. That's a really hard charge to get a conviction on. Canadian criminal law almost never punishes you for what you didn't do, things they call crimes of omission. It punishes you for what you did. And the times when you can be punished for failing to do something are really limited and they're written directly into law. So if you're a parent, you can be punished for failing to feed your kid. If mm -hmm. you're a doctor and there's a patient under your care, 
you can be punished for failing to give them care. As an older teen, do you have a legal duty to help a younger teen, even if that teen is in incredible distress, even if you think that teen is going to die? The experts I've spoken to think probably not. What about the idea that they gave him the drugs that ultimately killed them? There's been talk in parts of the country and police forces in various parts of the country have started laying manslaughter charges relating to people who have sold or provided drugs to those who died of fentanyl overdoses. I know that's talking specifically about the opioid crisis in Canada, but has any discussion come up around a more severe charge like that? I don't think we have enough information about what happened that night. You know, if this was a case where it could be proven that one teen in particular or one kid induced him to take an enormous amount of drugs or forced him to take enormous amount of drugs, you might have an aggressive police force or prosecutor try that. But the facts we actually know so far are so limited as to how he came to take that much drugs, what, who gave him the drugs, why he took mm -hmm. them, that, I mean, it would just be such speculation at this point to say. This isn't the first time that we've seen video going viral of young people acting in a dehumanizing way to another human being. There's been instances of uh, abuse toward people with autism, uh, urination on people. What are some other instances that may be notable in this case or similar to the case of Carson? One that I, I heard cited a bunch was that of a guy named Jamel Dunn. Uh, Jamel was a 31-year-old in Florida. Uh, he had a bad leg, essentially. He had trouble walking. And he ended up in uh, a little pond and couldn't get his way out. And there were four teens on the bank of the pond. And they filmed him as he's yelling, help me, help me. And they basically said, LOL, we're not going to help you. You're going to die. I mean, literally, they said, you're going to die. We're not going to help you. And he died. Mm -hmm. And they shared this video. And I mean, this was a huge case in Florida, huge in the same way that Carson's death is huge here. And the local police force investigated for several years and in the end could find no criminal statute to charge these guys with. Do you get the sense that because this is so public, there's even more pressure on police to lay charges or to find a way to hold those who were responsible accountable for their actions? Well, I mean, I think a fair bit of the pressure on police in this case is going to come from the fact that police were called two hours before Carson was initially found. The, the independent watchdog that oversees the police in BC announced last week that someone saw the Snapchat video and phoned police and said, can you please check on this kid wow. uh, two hours before, you know, a, a bystander found him and they didn't find him. So to the extent that there is pressure on the police in this case, I think it's going to come more from there. I mean, uh, you know, you've got a dead kid who died quite publicly. There's always going to be pressure and public interest on police in terms of finding, is there someone criminally responsible there? You know, taking off my reporter hat for just a second, I mean, I think that we have to look beyond criminal responsibility when we think about looking at sanction and responsibility when something goes wrong. Mm -hmm. I, I think that it is such a default to say, who are we going to charge? Who can be punished? 
as a society, we need to think more broadly about things like that and, and think about what are the other mechanisms for responsibility in something like this. On that note, though, the the fact that police were called and do we they didn't go to the scene two hours prior, did they? Or did they go out and look and couldn't find him? Do we know some of those details or some of that background about what happened? When a watchdog like that is called in, the police clam up for very good reason. Yeah. They're not supposed to talk. You know, he was found very close to where this filming went on and very close to his house. I haven't physically been there, but everything I've read, everything I've seen suggests it would not have taken a thorough search to find him. What have people been saying about this case in relation to the behavior of young people in real life and the behavior of young people online? And is there a gap there or is there a lack of understanding there on the part of kind of older uh, people, adults, people in positions of authority? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I really wanted to explore because I think the first instinct when we as old people see something like this and 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 see something that's going online is to say, you know, oh my God, the kids these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second instinct I have is to be, well, wait a minute, kids have always been awful in certain ways to each other, right? Like, it's not like bullying was invented with social media. It's not like cruelty was invented with social media. But what I was interested in trying to find out is, okay, do we know, is there evidence to show that kids are doing more cruel things or more extreme things because of social media for the purpose of filming and putting it out there? Or is it more a case that we are simply as grownups getting more visceral access to the cruelties of youth that have always been there? And where do you think you you landed with it, with your your piece? What What are people telling you about these trends? The top line answer from the people who study this at the highest level is that we don't have enough good data to say one way or the other. The science just has not kept up with the technology in this and and the changes in youth behavior with social media are so fast and it evolves so quickly that it, that it's really hard to do good science on how it affects their behavior. Mm-hmm. That said, what People who who have spent decades studying youth and social media and youth online will say is that, number one, online behavior almost always reflects offline behavior. So if you're seeing the things that kids are presenting online, the way they're presenting, a bullied kid offline is going to be a bullied kid online. Mm -hmm. A bragging kid offline is going to be a bragging kid online, a confident kid, et cetera. But what they have seen is sort of an exaggeration. So there's evidence to show that kids are doing the same things or doing, you know, the modern equivalent of the same things. But because it's being presented for display, basically, they're tending to do it in a more exaggerated fashion. So it's the idea that in this case, the teens who may have filmed this and put it on social media for either their own entertainment or for the entertainment of others would have behaved in a certain fashion offline without cell phones rolling film and without Snapchat and without the ability to joke about it with a wider audience. 
Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say with a specific case because we, we don't know these kids. Mm-hmm. But but in general, I, I, I think that's that's true. Now, I mean, there is evidence and, and some sort of really preliminary brain evidence to show that getting likes and getting follows sort of activates the same pleasure centers in the brain as like eating chocolate or, or winning a lottery. Um, but that science is pretty early. And to me, it's sort of intuitive. Like kids have always sought the approval of their peer groups, yeah. right? And 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 some kids have always done dumb things or mean things or extreme things to get that approval. Uh, what social media has done is is quantify it. Like it's, it's in a bizarre way, the same thing that's, that's happened to the stuff we do. We've always sought viewers and readers. Mm-hmm. It's just we have way more data now as to how to quantify that. And that's happening with, you know, regular teenage life too. I mean, you, you raise an interesting point about kids doing things for the approval of their peer group. It seems in this case, we have two very extreme and sad examples of that. We have the younger bullied teen who's desperately seeking the approval of people uh, in his peer group who ends up dying of a drug overdose. Meanwhile, you have a group of teens who potentially are doing something very harmful for that same reason, because they want someone else's approval. It's interesting. And, and, you know, it's been a long time since I was a teenager, but I was, I was thinking back on, on this, those years and years ago in Alberta, but for this story, but one of the things I think we forget or that we, we don't think about when we're not around teens a lot is that kids aren't the best at necessarily telling the difference between attention and approval, if you know what I mean. And, um, kids will do things, extreme things, cruel things, because it, gets them noticed and gets them talking about them. I mean, adults will do it too, right? But so it's almost like having an audience or having notice is the same or does similar things to the brain as getting approval or getting likes. And and I think what you find in a lot of kids who end up in trouble and a lot of kids who end up acting out in negative ways is that that's how they learn how to get attention, right? So it could be like, oh my God, I can't believe you did this, you insert expletive here, but that's still notice. Do you know what I mean? Now, one of the things I've seen mentioned a number of times in relation to Carson's death is comparison with the Rena Verk killing back in the 1990s. Obviously, we're, we're talking about uh, two different cases, but what is the comparison that people are drawing here? I think the comparison seems more like in the victim that Rena was a 14 year old who was desperate to fit in, who didn't have a lot of friends, who ended up with a group of older teens who were effectively taking advantage of her. You know, what happened in the Rena Verk case, though, is that, I mean, she was just straight up murdered, mm-hmm. right? You know, her head was held underwater. I, I think that's, that's a clear line in this case. Yeah. I, I think that what happened to Carson is an enormous tragedy, but I, I don't think we've seen any evidence that someone did to him what the people who killed Rena Verk did to her. In that case, she was invited uh, to what she thought was a party, and then she was swarmed by a group of kids. She was beaten, and she eventually, uh, her head held underwater. A, a huge tragedy a, a, as well. Do you get the sense that we may get answers in this case? Or 
do you feel like there could be a lot of things left unknown, especially if charges aren't eventually laid? It's a tough question, right? Because what's what's the answer? You know, everyone who's in that community already knows who the teens were that night. I, I don't think it's a big mystery. Mm-hmm. It, will the answer be, did Carson know what he was taking? Will the answer be, did someone force him to take it? Will the answer be, what was the cruelty behind this? Did they know he was in that much trouble? I mean, we might get a detailed outline as to what happened that night. Are we going to have answers as to what inspires someone to see a peer in deep distress and to run away? I don't know. I mean, that's almost more of a philosophical question than a legal one or a reporting one. Well, it is definitely a sad case, and it does highlight, I think, a lot of issues that that parents of teens, uh, if it's not keeping them up at night, it's definitely things that they're thinking about. Richard, thanks for your time. Hey, thanks very much. 103 is produced by Carson Jarama. Additional production from Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest Richard Warnica. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. 